0: Today's episode is sponsored by Aperion Games, and their latest game, Ahau, and that's A-H-A-U. Experience the challenges of leadership deep in the jungles of the Yucatan Peninsula. Build and secure your legacy as an ancient Mayan ruler by expanding your lands, acquiring resources, and making the proper offerings to a powerful pantheon of gods. With Ahau's innovative dual-engine building system, the possibilities are endless on your path to victory. And this 1-5 to player game features a personality-driven solo mode by acclaimed designer David Digby. So be sure to check out Ahau, again that's A-H-A-U, on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level.
1: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com welcome to the board game design lab podcast a proud member of the dice tower network each week we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love and now here's your host gabe barrett what's up my friends
0: welcome to the board game design lab today we're talking about two player games what does it look like how do you design a game only for two players and we're talking to Alf Seegert a professor of video game narratives which I want to dive into that and just say and not talk about what that means uh, and also a freelance designer he's worked a lot with Red Raven games he's got some excellent two-player games out on the market right now Alf welcome to the show hey thank you so much Gabe I appreciate it yeah man really glad to have you here we've been trying to work this out for so long trying to get you here on the show and just never worked out schedule wise really excited to have you here and talking about a topic that I feel like you are a just excellent expert in in, you have several, several games that are two player only and uh, they work in different ways. You're not just doing one thing. You're doing different mechanisms, different themes and, and approaching things from different angles. And so, yeah, just really pumped to chat about these kind of games and how do you uh, how you design them. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All
2: that kind of thing. Oh, boy, Um, a a lot to talk about there in the who are you. Um, Well, I am a professor up at the University of Utah. I'm with the English department. I'm a professor in the Department of English. I'm an affiliate professor with Entertainment Arts and Engineering as well. And um, the kind of courses that I teach are video game storytelling, um, narratives in video games. We analyze those. I teach a whole lot of students from all around the world who are studying game production, especially. Um, But I also teach students um, just in any discipline, also in the English, um, who are getting English degrees. um, and let's see here i also have been designing board games for about 22 years and i started playing games as a kid all the time whenever i could as role-playing games we'd start with dungeons and dragons tunnels and trolls moved on to games like talisman i coded a version of dark tower the board game the electronic board game for the um for the high school mainframe computer back in the mid 1980s. And I sort of uh, went on from there to ultimately um, falling in love with Euro games. And uh, that ended up becoming something which kind of took over my life. I find that most of my time when I'm not teaching or something like that, I'm thinking about my latest game. I'm working on a new one right now that I kind of can't stop thinking about.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I know a lot of people listening can definitely relate to that. And uh, game design, it's it's like a, it's a virus, man. It gets a hold of you and it just won't won't let go. And that's sometimes a good thing. And sometimes uh, means you're not going to get much sleep at night yes. and, uh, you know, pros and cons. But before we get into two player games, all right, I got I gotta go back. Professor of video game, storytelling, video game narratives. I mean, I was in college not that long ago. Tell me what that is. I don't remember that course. That, that didn't show up on the uh, the opportunities. You know. So what is that?
2: So my actual title would be a assistant professor lecturer in English, and so it's in the English department that I teaches core. I teach courses in video game storytelling um, or in literature, films, and video games. And what we do is um, because it's in the English department, I'm not just teaching video games um, or teaching video game mechanics. I'm teaching video game narratives, and so I want to see how storytelling works in video games, and especially how interactivity ends up altering storytelling from the other kinds of forms that we're most used to. Um, I wouldn't refer to novels and films as passive, like a lot of people do. They're perfectly active. You have to be engaged to make sense of them, but they're not interactive. But when you're playing video games, of course, what you do in a game either actually alters the outcomes, or at least it feels like it alters the outcomes. Where I see a lot of people go wrong when they try to teach video game narratives or address it, is they try to teach video games as if they're literature, as if they are just another medium telling a story. But because they're games, because they have mechanics built in, I really think it's essential that we look at how the mechanics and the narrative are welded together. Mechanics as metaphor is how Extra Credits puts it on YouTube, where you end up having a mechanic drive the narrative in a really significant way. So that's what we focus on. This has been a shift. Um, You'll have noticed in a lot of departments around the country, but especially at the University of Utah, that you have a lot of courses in what would be called popular culture now really taking off but also the university of utah has a games degree through entertainment arts and engineering which is a rooted in um, computer science it's been connected with film in the past but now it's its own major and so students from all around the world come to the university of utah to study games and i think it's a really fascinating development
0: yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I majored in English. I got a degree in English, right. and specifically creative writing. And like I said, this this wasn't on the opportunities list. Nope. You know, It wasn't going down the you know, the list of the uh, classes that I could take. It, it wasn't in there. And so I would have much rather have taken this than and poetry. Nothing against poetry, just not my deal. And a uh, video game narrative, it sounds like a lot more fun. Oh, and it it's obviously wonderful. translates into board game design. So much of,
2: of that kind of stuff flows, right? It absolutely does. And I think that those people who want to design video games, make a good board game first, because if you're used to the limited resources and the physical components of a board game, that will prepare you well for writing in a really elegant way when you create video games. My favorite video game designer is Fumito um, U- Ueda, uh, because his games are a stripped back design by subtraction method, which is much more like what we see in the best of board games, where you take out as much as you can to drive the game, as opposed to just piling on everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well,
0: cool, man. Well, hey, let's get into two-player games. Let's start off, let's talk about maybe some of the main hallmarks. Like, when we talk about two-player games, I mean, it, it can't just be, well, you could play this game at four, but, you know, the company, the, the publisher, they didn't want to put the extra money, they didn't put the extra components in the box, so they're just going to play at two. You know, I, I think we're talking something a little bit deeper in that, in that a game that plays, like, maybe at best At two players, and what does that look like? And so, when you think two player games, when you sit down to design one, what are some of those like core, maybe pillar concepts that make it specifically a two player game?
2: Well, if, if it's okay, can we back up a little bit first to sort of talk about yeah. the just the general reasons why I would do this? Because I don't ever sit down and go, hmm, how do I design a two-player game? That's not at all how I work. Yeah, it, it, it's a limitation more than anything. I mean, I grew up as um, just living under the same roof with my mother, no dad. My siblings didn't live under the same roof. I'm used to thinking dyadically. I'm an introvert. I don't typically hang out in large groups. I hang out with one other person, maybe two at a time. And so I think in terms of dyads. And so I've made multiplayer games, but I really tend to think in terms of face-to-face. And because of that, I just sort of design games that feel natural at 2. I have a lot of games that I think are best with 2, but they adapt admit more than two players. So, for example, when I came to Eagle Griffin Games with The Road to Canterbury, it was as a two-player game. And they, I think rightly, for very good reasons, thought, can this be made a four-player game? What can you do? And I did everything I could, and we worked it out to make it a really unusual two- to three-player game. And if you get onto Board Game Geek, you'll see a ton of people will swear that it's best with three, and then a bunch of other people will say it's best with two. So it works well with both, but I really designed it for two, and it happened to work as well for three.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like I like diving, Is actually my second question about like, why would you design two-player games? Uh, and what you know we'll get into what draws people into that uh, in just a second. But it's always important to realize the context of a designer. For instance, I design mostly single-player games right now, because right. that is my context partially because of the pandemic, partially because my life is extraordinarily busy and I don't really have time to have like a scheduled game night and have a bunch of people come over and stuff like that. But I can always find time at 1147 at night when I'm by myself and everybody else is asleep and I can sit down and play test a game solo. And so I feel like so much of game design comes out of what is the designer's context? What do they have access to? Who do they have access to? That's always something to remember for anybody listening to this. Don't feel like you have to force yourself into a certain context, like, in football, we say take what the defense gives you. Right. If they're giving you the short pass, throw the short pass, get seven yards, and play another down. If they're giving you something deep, throw it deep. You know, Whatever the defense is going to give you, don't force it into double or triple coverage because it's probably not going to work out. And so that's really important for, for people just to understand. Like,
2: whatever your context is, design based on... That, does that make sense? Uh, that makes absolute sense. I mean, that that's actually a principle of my design more generally for how I want gameplay to work. I don't want there to be a winning strategy in any of my games. I want it to be, you're going to have your hand of cards. You're going to get something to work with. How do you optimize what you've got to make it as interesting and fun as possible? And you'll have a lot of different choices. But I don't want there to be a, oh, well, I know I've got to do this, right? Um, so instead of deciding ahead of time, yeah, run with what you've got. And for me, I, um, my wife and I, the main person I play games with is Tasha. We play games all the time and it's just the two of us. We don't have any kids. And um, that's how we play. And so it's just very natural to make two-player games because of it. And I've noticed a lot of people on Board Game Geek, for example, play two-player games because it's hard to get a group together during the pandemic, especially. Um, if they have children, when the children are asleep, then they can just play a quick game. There's two people. And so I think it's a really, really important thing to have games have really good quality games for two that don't feel like they're a come down from a four player game my goal has always been to make a game that you can play in 45 minutes that will feel like it's the satisfaction you'll get out of a multiplayer game that plays for an hour and a half
0: yeah, that's great. And I feel like a huge category of these kinds of games. You might call significant other games. Absolutely, you know, games for spouses, games for you know people in a relationship, games for people that live. It could also be just a roommate. You know, people that you have direct access to because they live in your house. <laughs> and so, I feel like that's something to to, to think about now. If you're going after. A a customer group that has children or has a super busy life, like you're saying, you might want a game that only lasts 30 to 45 minutes and plays really well at two players and you can set it up in 30 seconds and it's really fast to learn and really fast to put back up. It's just something to think about from the product standpoint of games more than just the design. And so significant other type games, What, what are some of the other reasons why people are drawn towards two player games?
2: Yeah, I, I wanted to run with your, your significant other point here because it crossed my mind that there's been some talk among people of, Oh, I can't stand multiplayer solitaire games, for example. Right. And I remember, I think it was with Rado, the reviewer I was discussing this with. And. It was revealed that a lot of people like games that don't have so much direct conflict, but more indirect, where you kind of have your own little um, area that you're working on, right? Um, your own little tableau, and so you don't want to be too direct in conflict. Well, you can even do that in a two-player game, right? Um, so those are great games to play with one spouse, where you don't have to engage in necessarily direct conflict, because some people like that and a lot of people don't. Um, so that was just to run with that whole notion. And then your question again.
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to follow up on that because I think one one of the things I've heard Rado say uh, as far as two-player games with he and his wife in, in conflict is, well, you have to realize that if I destroy your thing, then it's not only your – and also gain points. That's a huge swing, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's not just you go down or I go up. It's both yeah. at the same time. Yep, swing and so, is up a, everything, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's definitely something to, uh, to keep in mind. But going back to my question, it's like what are some of the other reasons that draw people in?
2: Oh, for two-player games? I mean, I guess I don't think a lot about the motives. I work with what I've got in terms of how I think, and, um, and so I don't tend to think about what other people's motives are to play those kinds of games. Um, so I think I'll punt on that question, because let me see if I come back around to it, but I don't have a really good response for what the psychological you know, reasons are for people, why, why people would play them. I guess if yeah. I were better at marketing, I would think about that more often rather than just designing.
0: <laughs> no, worries, one of the things I, I came that came to my mind is I play a lot of games with one of my children. And so it's a great way to kind of have some time where it's just I've, I've got four kids. And so if I can ever just take, you know, 20 minutes and say, hey, let's let's set up a game real quick. Let's play a game. And just me and you, you know, it's it's kind of like going on a date with, with somebody and just spending that time. saying hey, it's just me and you, the rest of the world can go away for a little bit. We're just going to hang out just me and you and have this time together, to build this relationship. And so I love Playing these games with with my kids and just kind of having that isolated. Hey, I am here, just you and me. You want to chat about anything while we're playing a game? And so I think that's another context for people to realize is uh, family games might it's something to think about. Two player family style games that a parent can play with a child, or you know someone can play with their. Uh, you know, a 15 year old can play with their grandmother while they're you know, talking about life or whatever it is. I think that's another category of games that maybe doesn't get as much love or as much uh, recognition as it should, because I feel like that's a huge opportunity and maybe a really good marketing point as well.
2: I think you're really right about that. I think there might be a few cliches that need to be overcome as far as what two player games consist of. Like if you ask someone, name me a two player game, more often than not, they'll say chess which is very head-to-head and, you know, can be quite vicious, right? Um, But it doesn't have to be that way. And you could play a lot of cooperative games as two-player games as well.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And cooperative games are a great way uh, to do this. But also, at the same time, I want to teach my kids failure. I want to teach them, you know, how to overcome being absolutely demolished, uh in a game and Mm -hmm. so i'm just i'm I'm partially kidding but partially telling the truth it's good for kids to learn how to lose (laughs) it's good for
2: kids to learn all those things well well, the space of a game is a magic circle right The, the whole purpose of a game is to let you have the thrill without the threat that's aesthetic distance that gives you that sense of this is a safe space in which to fail and it ritualizes conflict in a way that i think we all really really need because people are taking themselves way too seriously right now
0: yeah Oh, that's a really good point. Also, the elation, the sheer happiness when one of my kids beats me, because I don't let anybody win. Like, if we're going to play, I'm going to play. Like, you're going to get my best, you know? And so every now and then they'll win and, and they know they earned it. They know that dad didn't give, didn't give them anything. And uh, it's it's a huge like confidence booster in there as well. And so I think that's just something else to, to think about. This is a great way to teach lots of different uh, things about life through games.
2: I think that's right. And I think that's why randomness is necessary, both when you're playing games with children so it isn't just determined by skill where an adult's going to have an advantage but also the luck of the dice is good practice for how reality works
0: yeah that's a really good point that's something i want to come back to in a little bit as far as how much randomness in a two-player game because i feel like it's it's a little different than if you have you know three or four or more players let's go back to one of my original questions though what are some of the main like pillars of two-player games what are the things that that seem to show up in in two-player games and do really well the things that like are, are ways you would know, okay, this, this works really well for two players. Maybe it wouldn't work quite as well at bigger player counts. What are some of those ideas?
2: Yeah, well, like one of the descriptions I see from my game Haven a lot, Haven is sort of a Princess Mononoke-style game of the city versus the forest, and having a clearly defined theme where you're going to probably be oversimplifying morally, but there's goodies and there's baddies, right? But someone has to, mind, has to not mind playing the baddies, but a tug-of-war. And so a tug-of-war suggests a very linear conflict, very head-to-head, right? My gain is your loss. And so when there's a theme of sort of darkness versus light or something of zero sum, then that works really well with a two-player game. Um, When you have a theme that's like, I've noticed people trying to do this sometimes with multiplayer games and it just doesn't feel so right because, I mean, what do these factions really consist of? Um, So it works really well when you want to have a dyad. So I try to have characters who play this out. So either it's the forest versus the city or in Heir to the Pharaoh um, your players who are vying to become the new ruler of Egypt, but you're really just the pharaoh's pet cat and dog. So it's this archetypal conflict of cat versus dog. Everyone recognizes that immediately, right? Even though you're the dog Anubis, the god, right? And you're the cat um, Bast, you can sort of take these archetypal roles and it's immediately recognizable, oh, this is a head-to-head sort of conflict. And so you want the themed and the mechanics to feel like they support each other that way. So that would be a really big sort of thing that way.
0: Yeah, I really like the idea of the push-pull, some kind of mechanism that really shows that that push-pull and that tension that's going on. I think also races can work really, really well. Like you know, if you're racing to a certain victory point threshold, you're racing to get to a certain location first or something like that. I think races can also be, it's kind of like if you're running a literal race, like
2: you see the person right there next to you and you're trying to, yeah, move faster. And so anything else you want to add? Yeah, or, or a location, a location grabber game, right? Um, like in Haven, it like I, I got a little bit tired when I was playing Euro games in the early aughts where there was some pr- um, prize for being first place, some prize for second place, some prize for third place. And I just, it started to feel really, I don't know, it wasn't the participation trophy problem, but it just started to feel a lot less interesting than the idea of I got it or you got it. Um, the notion of we're going to race for some kind of benefit, and either I get it or you get it. Um, I really like that. I think that works really well in a two-player game. That being said, when I was designing the game Haven, when I did that originally, it Imbalanced the game way too much. It had the snowball effect where someone who was getting ahead gets really far ahead. The problem you have in Catan of someone, once they start getting cities, they start to really start to snowball and win the game. And what I did is had you vie for different things using the same cards. And so one person might be vying for lore on a card and the other person vying for the martial symbols, the symbols of um, weaponry. And so one person might win one and one person win the other, or one person might win both. But it's always up in the air during that tug of war and you're not quite sure.
0: Yeah, another thing I really love about two-player games that, that kind of pull this off well is the meta. It's the head game. It's the I know that you know, but I also know that you know that I know, and that kind of back and forth and maybe right. trying to outguess your opponent and, and you're trying to, and especially if you get to play the game multiple times and you kind of get to figure out, okay, my spouse or my friend, they really like this strategy, but now they know that I know. And Anyway, you have some really cool moments of like outguessing and kind of outplaying because you get inside their head, and I think that's really cool and, and really works well at two players. With three, with four, with five, it's, it's hard to be in that many people's heads at the same time and figuring things out. It's just too much chaos going on as far as like trying to guess what they're going to do but with two players oh you can have a lot of fun kind of figuring out and then basing your strategy around what you know their strategy might be
2: well yeah i think that's absolutely true too because I, like in my game illumination for example it feels a little bit more like a game like go where when you put something down you know that before you can play again the table's going to change but you know it's not going to be three other people acting before you get to go again that you know that even if your opponent Responds to your behavior by doing this, they can't do this, 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 and this. And so there is that sense of where I think you're right. You can get into another player's head and have some more level of maybe control and tension that's manageable when it's a two player game.
0: Yeah. I also love the ability to like set myself up and like create combos and things like that. Like you're saying, you have a lot of people at the table. I mean, I've played a lot of games where there's really no point in me strategizing because by the time it gets back to being my turn, I have no idea what the board's going to look like. I don't know what cards are going to be available, what the market's going to be like. I have no idea. I might as well go make a sandwich, go use the bathroom, come back. Oh, it's my turn. Okay, now I'll figure out what I'm going to do. But with a two-player game, okay, now I've got maybe opportunities to think through, okay, I'm going to do this this turn. I'm hoping that my opponent does that next turn, and that's going to set me up to do this really cool combo thing or put my tokens in new places or whatever. And to see your opponent put their card or put their token right in that perfect place where you set them up, where you led them to do it. Yep. And then they do it. And then you just get to smile and lay down the thing. And then they realize that they were set up. They realize that you have outplayed them and they have to just bow to your greatness. It's a fun moment. I really like it. I
2: like that fu- that moment. That, that is really smart. I hadn't quite thought of it that way. It's a, a lot to do with pacing, right? Um, and it seems to me like when I consider how many multiplayer games I play, when I do, they're typically party games like Snake Oil or something, right? And that's not a game you, you ever worry about who won that game, right? You're not strategizing. Um, and I think that I rarely play strategy games with more than two people now that we... Now that it comes to it, I used to, um, back when our game group would get together every week. I remember when when we got through the desert, Reiner Knizia, back in the early aughts, we got together like five days in a row to just play that game and nothing else. And that strategy there did work just fine with multiplayer. But I think since then, I've really moved away from multiplayer strategies just um, to party games that are multiplayer. I think that says more about where my game group has gone in terms of time than anything else, though. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. But it's definitely something to think about if you are designing a two player game is how to create that tension, how to create these moments, you know, where the players do have uh, something, either they're inside their each other's heads or they're in that push pull. I I feel like there's a lot just to kind of think about from a two player perspective. Anything else? Just kind of broad, general theory kind of stuff. And then a second, I want to get into kind of the nitty gritty of some of your specific games.
2: I think that press your luck games can work especially well with two players. Again, because of the wraparound that you might say, okay, I'm willing to risk this much this turn, trusting that my opponent won't end up, you know, doing what it takes to end up overshooting or something like that. Whereas if it wraps around after three other players get to go, you can't do that. And so I'm thinking about other genres that work really well, like press your luck. Um, Area control is usually understood like, uh, all right, let me start over. What, what I try to do with my games is have two player games do things that typically only multiplayer games do well. So like area control, you typically think about being a multiplayer game. I like to do it with two players. Um, bidding is usually something you think about as multiplayer. I like to do it with two players. And so I think finding a way to take something that usually only works with multiple players and making it exciting for two, that's sort of a challenge I give to myself. So I'm happy to talk more about that.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a really good point, because how many times have people bought a game that was really good at three, really good at four, but it says two on the box? It says two to four. And it's no good at two. And it's not. Exactly. It it can be played. Very few games are great with two and four. Exactly. It can be played, but it's not the real experience. Uh, I was talking to Ted Osbach about this a long time years ago, and he was saying how, you know, just because your game can go up to five, doesn't mean it should. If it's really good at four, stop at four, because what's going to happen is people are going to buy that game. They're going to take it to game night. Everybody wants to play the new game. So they're going to play it with five because they you know, as many people can get in as possible. The game goes up to five, but then it's not that great of an experience. And then they don't ever play it again because their first impression was not the best. And so if it's best at four, just stop it at four. Yeah, and, this it, makes me think you of know. like
2: Concordia, which is one of the best games ever designed. Um, and we played it, the first time we played it was with like, I think five people is where it maxes out. And it was very slow, (laughs) but I could see that it would be great with fewer players. And now it's a two-player staple. We just adore that game with two, where I think most people would say it needs to have more. I love it with two. But yeah, I agree with you. It's best to put on the box the actual player number. Um, Some of my games have higher player numbers that they permit, but I have no idea how they play. Um, There are certain ways around this which are interesting. Like Fantastica, I designed as a two-player game that I knew I wanted to have play up to four, but I wasn't sure how to do it. Um, but Rick Seward, um, uh, the developing it at Eagle Griffin, he's like, why don't we make it a partner's game when you play four players, where it's two versus two? And I never would have thought of that, but he played a lot of bridge, and so he knew how to do that, and it ended up working pretty well.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, point and figuring out ways, to, kind of around the drawback of... It, okay, it really doesn't go up to four. But yeah, but what if it was 2v2? And and so it's still technically a two-player game, but maybe there's some other little variations you can add in there and still kind of keeps the feeling of the original. I think that's another really smart way to look at it. But all right, let's let's uh, let's dive into some of your specific games. Let's start off with Road to Canterbury. Again, as an English guy, you're an English guy. I think this is a great place to start. And so tell people just real quick like what the game is, how it plays, and then let's get into like what makes it such a, a good two-player
2: game experience. Okay. Well, a, a lot of my games get inspired by weird things. Like my game Troll was a game about Viking trolls that I pretty much just lifted from The Muppet Show with Viking Pigs and turned it into a game. The Road to Canterbury, I was teaching Chaucer the Pardoner's Tale and the Pardoner's Prologue. And I just kept thinking, wow, the kind of deception this guy is trying to pull off would make a great game mechanism. And so I h- halfway thought of The Pardoner's Tale. I'll talk a little bit about it in a second. I thought, this would make a great episode of Black Adder or a Monty Python sketch or something like that, but it would also be a fun game. And the basic premise is that pardoners in the Middle Ages, they would issue certificates that would uh, forgive people of the temporal consequences of their sin. It wasn't quite as simple as saying they were forgiven for sins, but they wouldn't have to experience any sort of extra time in purgatory or any kind of, um, they wouldn't have to work off the penalties of what they have committed in terms of sins. This is what Martin Luther ended up objecting to, among other things, um, with his um, famous protest in 1517. And so, in the road to Canterbury, I had the idea that you'd have a bunch of pilgrims from the the Canterbury Tales by Chaucer, and they would all be heading on pilgrimage um, to the Shrine of Thomas Becket in Canterbury, and along the way would be a pardoner. And the the players of the game would play different pardoners who would have to keep themselves in business by selling these pilgrims certificates for giving them of the consequences of their sin but to keep yourself in business as you play you have to tempt the pilgrims to commit the very sins that you then forgive them of <laughs> and it worked really well and so it's a fun game where on your turn you are it's very very simple rules I i believe in making games as simple and clean as possible um and i The rule in the game is to play one card on your turn. It's either going to be a sin or a pardon or a relic. If it's a sin, you're going to be tempting a pilgrim to commit a certain sin, and it goes next to him. If it's a pardon, then the number of sins of that matching type—so these are the seven deadly sins. And so I should mention the fact that as you're tempting these pilgrims with the seven deadly sins, ultimately they— end up keeling over because they have died of a deadly sin. And so they um, you have extra complications in there. But if you pardon these sins, you'll end up getting a certain amount of money, you'll get recognition from the partner's guild, etc. But knowing how to play so that you can do the press your luck of tempting one particular pilgrim, the miller, because he's so angry, um, tempting him to commit a sin of anger, and then another sin of anger, and another one, and hoping no other player has a pardon for anger, but you do, you let it build up in the kitty, and you're going to be the one to pardon that and get all the money and so that's um how that sort of thing works
0: now first of all i love the idea of tempting people to do something that then you have the pardon for it's hilarious and just kind of thank you it fits fits so well with the the canterbury story in general and how chaucer wrote it.
2: it it is it's very wily stuff yeah
0: yeah, but let's uh, let's talk about like what makes this a, a specifically two-player game. What are some of the things that you put into the design? Maybe some things you you tried but didn't quite work as well as you hope. What are some, just give me like the behind the scenes design aspects of the game.
2: So I had designed a game called Trollhalla just before this. It was um, the first game, you know, the second game that Ryan Lockett did the art for. Um, and that was the one about the Viking trolls. And I discovered in it that when you were playing Viking trolls, traveling around a board and you are sort of um, terrorizing an islands full of um, terrified peasants and whatnot and stealing their livestock, um, it didn't work very well with four players. In, on the box, it said it would play up to four players and I thought it worked okay. But I realized I never wanted to play it that way because by the time it was your turn again, too much had changed. It was just too much chaos but I like a certain amount of randomness. I don't like there being a set strategy. I like to sort of have to work with things as they radically change. And so I thought with my next game, I want to have that sense of, okay, I'm going to work out this strategy and have a little more reliability of the board not changing completely by the time it's my turn again. So I designed a game. I called it No Rest for the Wicked at that point before it was the road to Canterbury. And it was a two-player game where it worked really well to sort of, as I said, tempt these pilgrims and you could sort of pay attention to what your opponent was grabbing um, from the draw pile. Because when you play your turn, you play a card, and you draw a card. And when you draw a card, it either is one of the three face-up cards or a face-down card. So you could see when your opponent is grabbing a pardon for pride, for example. And so you know if you put down a temptation for pride, that your opponent might end up taking it by by pardoning it. Um, But if they don't ever take any face-down cards, you can kind of keep track of what they got. But as soon as they start taking face down cards, you don't know anymore. And so you have this sort of tension between you two of going, well, I'm going to let you keep building this up and you can tempt all you want, but I'm going to sneak in and pardon that sin, not you. It works really well as a head-to-head game. As I mentioned earlier, um, the publisher, I think, I think they were right, Eagle Griffin, um, said that it could play with more than two. Let's try it. And everybody agreed really quickly it doesn't work with four. But with three, it's just on the outside of not working, and it works fine. Some people say they don't like it with two. They like it with three. Um, I still play it only with, three, only with two. Um, and so, again, I think it's that sense of the, the buildup. Um, like, imagine you were playing a game of blackjack where other people could contribute by, on their terms, saying Hit. Right, where they would have the option of um, adding cards to the pile before it goes over 21. If you're playing that with four people, you know by the time it's your turn again that that is going to be a hand that's completely done, that there's nothing left to do. Whereas in a two-player game, it's going to wrap around back to you pretty quickly.
0: Very cool. And I love, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the, the meta of getting in the other, play, other player's head and going, okay, you picked that up, you laid that down, I kind of have an idea where you're going, but did you do that just to throw me off? And, and what are you really thinking?
2: Right. Lot, there's a lot of room for bluffing in two-player games that works extremely well because you don't lose it to noise. Sometimes in multiplayer games, there's so much going on, it's hard to keep track of. But it's kind of like—I guess it's the wrong metaphor because a stool is stable by having three legs, not two. But it feels like a stool that has three legs instead of four. It stays really stable um, when you're playing in a dyadic context. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very cool. All right. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit.
2: Let's talk about air to the Pharaoh. Which yeah, has- please, everybody and- go out and buy air to the Pharaoh, please. It would make me so happy. <laughs> I only say this because it's a game I worked on for 15 freaking years and it um, didn't get the attention it warranted. Um, I'm very proud of this game, and that doesn't mean it's great, but a lot of people really swear by it and they're like, where where did this come from? Why did I never hear about this? Now, look, there are some reasons. It's a game that has a board, which not all two-player games do. A lot of two-player games are card games, right? Um, and Heir to the Pharaoh has a full-sized board. It has really 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 high quality, nice components. And because of that, it's not super cheap. And so when you buy, let me just give this piece of advice to anybody who's designing anything at all. Think not just in terms of how awesome your game design is, but how you're going to market it and make sure that the price matches it because perceived value is everything. People might go, wow, that looks like a really wonderful game, but a two player game for 40 or 50 bucks. I'm sorry. I'm only going to buy that if I buy every new game right um and so that's one of the problems you have to work around when you're making a two-player game if you produce it with the quality of a multiplayer game it's probably going to cost the same as a multiplayer game and that's going to turn anyone who's not a diehard away right yeah all right so that's just my meta comments but please go on
0: yeah, well, that's a great point. And it's definitely something to think about from the product standpoint. Don't only think about things in terms of game design, but also in product design. And that's definitely what a publisher is going to be thinking about or somebody is going to want to take it to uh, do a Kickstarter campaign. And so all right, I know I know it's a game that has an auction, right, which is kind of typically a mechanism you want to have a lot of people. You know, and, and have different things, and raising the bids, and and you know people kind of going at it and back and forth and all that. But this is a two player game with an auction mechanism. So tell me how you made that work.
2: So if you read the comments on um, heir to the pharaoh, so again, this is a game where you're cats versus dogs in ancient Egypt, and it's an archaeoastronomy game as well, where you're having to align monuments in ancient Egypt for the most favorable outcomes to score. And what you're doing is petitioning favor from different gods. And so you have the god Ra, you have Isis, um, etc. And they all come out, and you have to bid for their favor. And so you have a set of cards, your opponent has a set of cards, and they're identical. They're numbered one through 10. Um, and then there's a little sun or a moon symbol. And what you do is every time a god appears, you end up simultaneously choosing one of your cards to bid. And then when both players are ready, you reveal it. And so one player will have a card that's higher than the others. If you both tie, then whoever has the sun wins it, and the moon doesn't. But here's the catch. When you end up winning a particular god's favor, that only lets you do a certain amount of stuff. It lets you alter the board in a certain way. It lets you place a building. It lets you rotate a building. It lets you collect a certain benefit or whatnot, but it doesn't let you do everything. But also what's really important is you want to bid as low as you possibly can while still beating your opponent. People often don't think about this because they're like, hey, as long as I win, I win. But in this case, anything you use to bid will be given to your opponent at the end of the round so they get to use it next round. And so if you know that your opponent really wants something and you bid a 10... Well, they might know that you know that, and they're going to bid a one, but if you know that they are thinking that, you might bid a two, but you want to always bid the lowest you can, because if you bid really high, you've just given your opponent the best possible card, and they're going to trounce you with it when everybody's done and we go to the next round. So that was the secret to a two-player bidding mechanism, is that you have the resources all really tightly accounted for. Everything you use is something your opponent's going to get. It's a decree of the pharaoh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really, really great way to handle it. And it also a little bit reminds me of Lost Cities, which is one of my absolute favorite. Lost Cities is a brilliant game. Yeah, one of my favorite two-player games because you have that great tension of, okay, I have to put a card down, and I want to make sure it's a card that my opponent doesn't need, but I don't exactly know what they need. And maybe they picked up the card earlier to bluff me. Maybe they didn't. And then you put the card down, and you have that like trepidation. You're doing it real slow, hoping that that's not... And it turns out to be the exact card they need to then... like. Destroy you,
2: <laughs> yeah. And how long are you going to wait till they play a card that's high enough that you know that they can't use the card that you are going to put down? Exactly. Yeah. Now, Lost Cities is a brilliant game,
0: for sure. And so, anytime you can recreate. The tension that Lost Cities does, or in this case, Air to the uh, Pharaoh, where you know you kind of have that, like, I'm not sure I'm going to play this because you don't have perfect information. I think that's another really uh, good thing to talk about as far as two-player games is not giving the players perfect information, having some degree of randomness, having some degree of unknown, just to kind of keep things uh, not necessarily chaotic, but but up for grabs, Like where you're not entirely sure how it's going to play out. So let's talk about that for a second then get into maybe some of your other games. Let's talk about the importance of randomness. How much randomness should you have in one of these games? Because I feel like if you have too much, then the, the margin can get too wide, right? So it's like... You know, the dice completely go against me this game. They completely went in your favor this game. And so you were so far ahead by round five out of seven that let's, let's just quit. I can't catch up. It, it yeah. doesn't matter anymore. And, and you know, in a, in a multiplayer game, the players can kind of take each other out. You know, some, if somebody gets ahead by too much, then everybody else gangs up on them. And it really becomes a three versus one game to right. bring that person back down. And they were back even. A two-player game you don't even have that.
2: Yeah, there's homeostatic mechanisms there to stabilize things that happen out of spite. I get that. Yeah. Um As my friend Mike Compton pointed out um, back with the Board Game Designers Guild that I was part of back in the aughts, he said people will forgive anything if it's short. Um, So the number one thing I would think about is if it has a lot of randomness, it better not be too long of a game. So more than player count, I would just think in terms of duration, right? Because if it doesn't go your way, you could always play the game again. Or you could say, ah, I don't want to play that again. Let's play something else, right? Um, And so I think that's really important. I'm trying to think about, in my games, um, the amount of randomness is not extreme. Um, With Trollhalla, for example, you can fill up your ships with your different um, Viking trolls and they're going to sail to different islands. um, And you can set things up so that you know exactly which Island a particular ship's going to go to. But the only aspect of randomness is which, which ship gets triggered at the end of the turn, you roll a die and it's a one in three chance that any particular ship will be triggered. I like one in three. I like rule of three for everything. It's in fairy tales for a reason Um, beginning, middle and end, but a one in three chance is enough to bank on as worth aiming for, right? or you can hedge your bets and so that you're like okay that one in three chance is something where i really want that but if it's two out of three that other option's okay let's hope it's not the one out of three so you can at least play with those but as soon as you're talking about like i've seen people make design games where the odds are like one in 36 of something happening that you want and as soon as you cut it that fine i just don't see that any strategy is really going on at that point
0: Right, at that point, the game is going to determine who wins right. more so than the players, you know, if you have
2: just too much yeah. randomness. Well, like, the game I'm working on right now um, is one where you can kind of choose the level of challenge you want, and so you could decide how much you want to risk. And so if the dice go against you, and you chose a really difficult challenge, that was you know that was your own risk right I think if it's a game where it's your typical roll and move or something from Monopoly as kids that's a different story and people are kind of used to it but there needs to be some mitigating factor if there's a lot of randomness where it's randomness that you elected for for example or something like that like um, games that have power cards for example you could have drawn some regular card but you could take a power card as well and it's random what you're going to get but it might be really powerful as long as you have some say over the randomness that's occurring I I think that ends up making the randomness a lot more acceptable right one of the things
0: i love to do is have randomness but also have have it where the player can pay for the randomness to come down so yeah. maybe they discard an extra card or they do something that costs them a little bit extra time in the round or something like that but they can mitigate it and they can maybe mitigate it to a, a, a lot you know a high degree yep but it's going to cost them something extra and so you know you kind of have that risk reward factor going in there that's one of the ways i like to uh, handle it
2: yeah, I mean, I think about Stone Age having the tools that you can use and stuff like that. Um, and then I think about the, um, the Catan welfare rule. Do you know about this for playing Catan in a way that actually works? no tell me about that okay well back when fun again games was sort of the go-to website um i um posted on there the welfare variant to Catan, and i didn't make it up someone in who was a friend of our game group brought up the fact that when you're playing settlers of Catan, it doesn't matter um how good of a player you are if if an eight is never rolled in the entire game and that's possible you might never get production on the most awesome space and your game is just miserable there's just you've got no luck right um so what happens is every time the die is rolled, everybody gets something in Catan. And so if you don't collect any wheat or any um, uh, any wood or whatnot, instead you collect a little token, a little Moncala piece or something like that. And then on your turns, you can trade in those little Moncala tokens at the value of your points that you currently have, and then you can get a resource for that. So if you're behind in the game, you only have two points, everyone else has six points. It only takes you two of those little Moncala stones because nothing ever rolled in your favor. It only takes cashing in two of those to get any resource you want. But once you start to get better and better and you've got six or seven points, you need six or seven of those little stones to actually get anything. At that point, there's no real point getting it. It's a self-regulating mechanism. I can't even imagine playing Catan without that rule. And so in my own designs, my current design, I'm working on exactly that kind of principle where you get something no matter what. So if you fail at a roll, then you'll get something in compensation um, even at the same time that you get punished.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. I've also seen games have a deck of cards instead of a, a die. And that way, you yeah, you, you know what's going to happen. And you know that the 12 is only in there twice and the 7 is in there five times, but the 12 is in there twice. <laughs> exactly it's in there you're guaranteed to have at least you know have those things come up two times as opposed to zero or as opposed to ten times where just something crazy happens and 12 gets rolled over and over and over again
2: and i think aesthetically that works fine for a game like Catan, but it doesn't have the panache when you're playing a dice game right when you're playing a dice game you want to roll the dice right Um, but Catan's not fundamentally a dice game so i think a, a card deck or a dice deck makes perfect sense yeah
0: yeah, for sure. And like Gloomhaven does this as well. They they could easily have a die that gives that extra random plus 1, plus 2, you know, minus 1, whatever. But they use a deck of cards, which gives players a little bit more control. You know, okay, I know that these cards have already been played, so I know my odds of, you know, these other numbers, I, I kind of understand what they are, but it's not exact. It's, just, it's still somewhat random, but you you can still make decisions based on a little bit better knowledge than just roll a die, see what happens. And
2: so I think that's a a good way to handle it. So so one of the the things that I do, I think this addresses your question from a minute ago, is rubber banding. Um, Some kind of mechanism, like you talked about the natural mechanisms that happen in a multiplayer game where players will start to gang up on the player who's ahead. Um, In a two-player game, you don't have that happen. And so I like to have some kind of rubber banding in effect where in um, my game Illumination, for example, anyone who ends up collecting um, enough Um, ritual tokens, like they get five wine tokens or whatever, and they go to the abbot in the monastery and they want to cash that in, they want to perform that ritual and get some points, that's great. But every time they go into the monastery, if they ever get anything for doing that, the opposing player gets to draw a scriptorium card. So there's always a benefit to the opponent every time you get something major. And that, I find, has worked really well. I started doing it in my game, Haven. Um, Every time you end up marking the board with your influence um, in the war, your opponent ends up getting something. And it just started to feel a whole lot better. Um, Players are a lot less unhappy because they know every time their opponent gets ahead, they get something to work with. And it's not something dumb. It's always something where it makes them go, oh, I've got a new strategy now. It doesn't feel like it's just some kind of um, patronizing benefit. It's not a participation trophy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And let's uh, let's keep talking about Haven. Probably your most beautiful game. I, I think Ryan Lockett just did a phenomenal job on it. Oh,
2: he, he did such a beautiful job. I mean, even the inside of the box has this forest. So it feels like you're entering a world just opening the box. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about that one. Tell... You know, people, how that one is played and maybe some of the concepts that they can take away from it as a 2 part game.
2: Yeah, so Haven took a long time in development as well. Um, I started working on the mechanics of that game back in about the year 2000-2001 where I was trying to make an archaeo astronomy game where you'd be aligning monuments to the heavens like ancient cultures would in Mesoamerica, in um, ancient Egypt, in England, etc. And I really liked it because I have a strong background in astronomy. I used to work at a planetarium, but it never really got anywhere. But I had some cool mechanics Mechanics where you'd be trying to um, combine cards to get to certain values, and instead of trying to beat someone or try to um, reach some value or higher, you had to get exactly a certain combination of cards. You had to aim for a total that would be seven or eight or whatever. And I just sort of hung on to that for a while. And a long time later, I was working with Ryan, and we had wanted to make a game um, together. And I gave him a proposal for a game, and he said, Yep, let's do it. And the thing is, it didn't quite work out. The mechanics just weren't coming together um, with what I had and it wasn't that archaeoastronomy mechanic. It was something totally different. It's mechanics I've never used since but we basically had to start all over from the beginning and I ended up taking this mechanic of sort of a tug of war with lore where you send seekers um, to go and get lore from the forest and as you do so, you have to do it within certain boundaries. That There are elemental guardians in the forest where if you take too much lore, then they'll get mad at you and you'll get in a lot of trouble and so each one of the particular tug of tugs of war that you engage in has a limit of like five six seven or eight and when you put down cards to send in seekers to collect that lore and to do battle if you exceed that value you don't get anything um so it's a very much a press your luck sort of mechanic there and so that's sort of the heart of that game and um i wanted it to feel like it would be an elemental contest where you are simultaneously looking for something that has nothing to do with conflict. It would be collecting lore and wisdom from the forest. But at the same time, you have a city trying to encroach upon a forest and you need to defend yourself. The city is better at fighting and the forest is better at lore. And so it's very slightly asymmetrical. It's not root, right? Um, But it's something where you feel like you have a sense of engagement, no matter what you're aiming for at the moment. But you had a specific question about Haven, and I think I might've missed it.
0: No, I was just talking about the uh, just general concepts that people could take away from it as a two-player design, and what were some of those things that really stuck out?
2: Yeah, and so it's it's a game where I try to keep it very simple as far as what you do on your turn in terms of there aren't a lot of different options of what you do. It's how you place things, because you're just playing a couple of cards on your turn, and you can do them to um, perform a special action if you have one of the special action cards, a, um, a lore card, lore power card, or you can be sending out seekers along one of the three different rows of different elements and what's great about it and i owe this to ryan completely because the game was working really quite well but not quite right ryan ended up turning around the turn order so that if you end up setting up the best possible arrangement where you have a combination of cards that you've put out they add up to the right number some of them are face up and some of them are face down so your opponent doesn't know what you've got but you feel really great about it you can't win that turn Basically, um, you have to start putting down offering tokens to show that you want that particular row or column, I guess, to get scored, but it can never happen on the turn in which you do that. And so it's your opponent who always gets to play after you might have everything set up to score, but they still get to go again. And so it isn't a game where you can just steamroll somebody else. There's a lot more um, tactical nuance to it than that. And this is the kind of stuff that works really well in a two-player game where you know there's only one other player to reckon with, not more than one. And so that was a game that was like, there's no way this could play with more than, more than two people. And one of the influences for the game was uh, Caesar and Cleopatra. Um, have you played that? Because not a lot of people have. Um, mm. You have not? No. Yeah, it came out around the same time as Lost Cities. And it's not quite as... Um, quick to play and whatnot. It's much more themed. It's Caesar versus Cleopatra in um, in Egypt and uh, in, I guess the first century BCE. And it's a charming game. It's very wily. And you're trying to get influence from different senators and consuls and stuff like that in Rome. But it's a tug of war, but it feels really random. And I was like, wow, I'd love to make a game like that where you felt like you were actually being strategic and have it be engaging, but not feel like it's going to be nearly such a, you know, a surprise because that was a game where you can invest yourself all like crazy, but you don't know what's going to count. And so there's always a random card you pull up for what particular column gets scored. And I'm like, "Ah, I want more control than that. And so in my game, I have it where you can start to elect for what gets scored by your placing offerings. As soon as three are down between you and your opponent, it'll get scored at the end of your opponent's turn. And so you can start doing it. But once you do that, it's a tell to your opponent that you probably have something strong. So there's all this information that's feeding back and forth between the players as far as what's going on there and sometimes you can win with a really crappy hand on your side but you've successfully bluffed out your opponent
0: yeah very cool and i also love the idea of the light asymmetry so the sides are somewhat different but it's not completely different although at the same time two player games are an incredible opportunity to have totally different sides where you have to figure out how to play maybe the mechanisms are a little bit different the way cards come out the way you score whatever is a little bit different or a lot different yeah. in a in a way that's a little easier to manage like one of the issues with root is it's so different and there's so many different factions that you could easily play a game have a terrible time because you had a faction that just didn't mesh with your playstyle and never want to play it again yep versus you know the opposite, right? And so I think that's one thing you run into with asymmetry in really big games versus two-player games where it's a little, I don't I don't know if safer is the right word, but anyway, it's a little bit easier to manage and for you to see, okay, I don't I don't like this one, but I think I might really like that one, so let's play again and then try see, not- I,
2: I don't have the problem Cole Worley does in the sense that I'm not a genius like him because he's so <laughs> smart. I mean, how on earth did he work that out, right? Um, it is just unnerving. So one of the reasons I probably designed two-player games is I just try to keep things so much more simple. I couldn't even imagine what it would take to iterate, to make a game like that work with all these competing factions. Because you know, it's not as if when you have, go from two to three different factions, you're adding one, you're always multiplying the number of possible relationships, right? And so the more you have, it gets exponentially more weird as far as the different things that can happen. So to make that work as a game, oh my gosh, what an achievement. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're also exponentially growing the amount of time you have to play test it That's and true. the number of things that are broken and that you've got to fix. And so it's just
2: something to uh, be aware of yep. as well. Well, this is one thing to think about on the practical level, too. If you're a hobbyist designer, you have a lot of luxury to just make what you want, right? But if you're someone who wants to make it your living, then you've got to consider all of this stuff in terms of how long it's going to take to test um, and your market potential, et cetera, et etc., in ways where a hobbyist designer is not going to feel quite the same way.
0: Yeah, no doubt. All right, let's switch gears. Let's talk about Fantastica and uh, what people can learn as far as the two-player aspects of that one.
2: Yeah, no, so that one does play from two to four. Um, and again, when it plays four players, it's two teams of two. So it's really a glorified two-player game, but with some more interaction on top of it there. Um, I'm not sure there's a whole lot I have to say about Fantastica in terms of its two-player-ness, except that like it's a game, for instance, that like um, Tom Vassel really, really liked. He and his daughter played it together. Um, Rado really, really liked it as well. And I think there's a certain sweetness to the game because it's sort of a fairy tale landscape. It's fantasy, not with goblins, and elves and dwarves like Tolkien, it's fantasy like 19th century fairy tales, right? Um, And so I think that what really distinguishes that game is not so much the player count as it is the notion of you're entering a space where... You're not going to take these terribly seriously. Like the meanest thing you could do to another player, apart from, you know, collecting a certain public quest before they do, it's that you can end up using your enchantress to put a peaceful dragon into their discard pile. Because it's a deck building game, right? And so that peaceful dragon now will just, he's too peaceful to do anything um, other than make tea. And so he hogs up space in your hand, right? Right. Um, so I think it's more the sort of tone of the game more than anything than, than it's 2 playerness. but it is not a terribly aggressive game. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what else I would say about it in terms of its two player aspects. Well, let's go into the idea of like quirky
0: themes or, or themes that are kind of maybe off the beaten path, aren't, you know, the normal, like you're saying,
2: fantasy of goblins and all that. Yeah, there is one other game that um, I designed which works, I think, best with two players. I haven't brought it up. It's called Musee. And it was my response to Lost Cities. And it's one where you're building your own art galleries inside of a museum. And what i really like about it is that you have to really pay attention to what your opponent is doing and again this is one of those mechanics that wouldn't work so well with multiplayer but it works great with two is that you just have two sides and so you have to place down cards in your gallery they can go anywhere except they have to go in order numerically so if you have a 10 card it can go anywhere in your gallery left to right except it has to go before anything higher than it and above anything lower than it, right? Um, And you have three different levels to this museum. And a lot of people play it, and they miss the subtlety of the fact that you're only going to do well if you're paying really close attention to what your opponent is playing. So it's a lot like Lost Cities in the way that middle area gets played in Lost Cities of the discards of when do I play what to not reveal too much, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like with these kind of different themes, quirky themes it's maybe a little bit easier from a two player standpoint one because the price point is typically lower you know somebody's not going to drop 75 dollars on a game with a theme they're like not super sure about but you could maybe drop 15 bucks on a game with a theme you're like i don't know and then you get into it and you find out the gameplay is really fun it's really enjoyable you know maybe a theme you weren't expecting so i think maybe that's part of it as well what else as far as like different themes because i feel like at this point on kickstarter it's like Miniature game of of the week, you know, and like, they're not that different. There's a lot of games coming out where it's like, okay, do I need another one of these? And at the same time, there's a lot of new stuff as well. But tell me, let's talk a little bit more about quirky themes just in general and why people might want to do
2: more of those. Well, it, it gets distressing, right? When you see yet another zombie game, yet another minis game, right? Um... And I just, I mean, there, look, there are too many games to handle out there. Um, I don't know where the numbers are now, but I know a couple years ago, there were over 3,000 new games being produced per year, uh, board games. It's about 14,000 new video games every year. And either way, it makes it really hard for any particular game to stand out. And sometimes the strategy people have to stand out is to just offer them what they know they already want, which is minis, for example, right? Or something that's tied in with a popular IP, right? That's going to be another way to do it. I try to do things where it's unusual, right? Um, like I made a bingo-based game, that was sort of a cross between bingo and the amazing labyrinth, and I called it Dingo's Dreams. I wanted to make something that just felt a little bit quirky and odd as a way to play a bingo game, and Ryan Lockett did beautiful artwork with Red Raven there, right? Um, my game Bridge Troll I remember I was approaching um, Zev Slashinger with Z-Man Games at the time, when he was with Z-Man Games, um, back around 2009. And I saw under his list of criteria um, for sending him a game, he said, if it's a fantasy game, it better be an interesting fantasy game. I don't want to see yet another fantasy game, right? Um, So if it looks like yet another D&D clone, no thank you, was sort of the implication. And so I sent him a game. I said, it's fantasy, but Trust me, it's not the same kind of fantasy. So I send him a game called Bridge Troll. And in Bridge Troll, it brought me back to my childhood and the story of the three billy goats gruff who um, encounter the bridge troll. And um, the, the notion of having to pay a toll to cross a bridge because the troll would insist upon it or he'll eat you, I thought was a nice little premise. So in the game, instead of you're playing someone who's trying to cross the bridge, you play the trolls. And so you have Ryan Lockett's really beautiful artwork um, for the different trolls, and they all live underneath the bridges, and their goal is to either eat or extort those who are trying to cross the bridges most effectively, all the while trying to repair your bridge and keep it up to spec. And I thought, well, that's not a game idea you see every day. And so I was really happy about that, and um, that was my first published game because of it.
0: Yeah, very cool. And I feel like you have. there's so much space to come up with ideas that haven't really been intersected yet, that haven't been meshed together, maybe taking ideas from one genre or, or one theme or one or other mediums,
2: I would say, not even just other yeah. genres, right? Because I think the worst thing possible would be to make your game like another game. Having its inspirations be another game, it's going to be just another game, most likely, if you do that. But if you read a lot and draw from what you read in your fairy tales, or if you go outside and watch um, a game I haven't, actually published yet. And I don't know if I will, because I think someone already took the idea is, you know, watch what your dogs are doing in relation to critters outside and watch their habits peeing. And you know, where, where do they go pee? Wouldn't it be cool to have a game where you're trying to out pee the other dogs, right? Um, so just trying to pay attention to what's going on outside of um, the game reality is going to give you the most interesting ideas for games.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's also this concept in marketing called the purple cow. Oh. And there's a guy named Seth Godin who he wrote a book called The Purple Cow and it's the idea that like if you're, you know, if you're driving along the countryside and you look out in a field and there's just a whole bunch of normal cows out there but then there's a purple one, well which one do you think is going to draw your attention the most? Yeah, right? that's smart. And So how- yeah, so how to stand out, and I feel like one great way to stand out right now in the market is to do something unexpected. And so I'll give you an example. The other day I was thinking about a game and just kind of jotting down notes and coming up with ideas and mechanisms things like that. And I was like, what if I, I designed a golf game, the sport of golf, that was also a dungeon crawl? And let's <laughs> mesh golf or a sports game with dungeon crawling and like, what would that look like? And how would the mechanisms work together and whatever? And so I posted it on Facebook in and in a, it'd be a solo game, obviously, because that's what I do. But anyway, I posted it in a, a solo gamer Facebook group and I said, Hey, what are your thoughts on, on this? And I had so many people go, Oh, that's interesting. And like, it, it stopped them to go, Oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's that's an interesting way to to come at it. Different angle. It's like yeah, okay. Let's let's see if this has any legs. But I feel like there's so many opportunities right now to kind of mish mash some you know mesh some things together that haven't been done before. And even if you're using mechanisms that are tried and true, like you don't have to come up with something crazy innovative because the idea itself, the way you're meshing concepts, that's the yep. innovation. And then go from there.
2: No, I think that that makes absolute sense. Like, right, the movie Outland was high noon in space, right? The HBO show Righteous Gemstones is a cross between televangelism and The Sopranos. And so you take (laughs) two things that you wouldn't think would go together, and you try to make a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup out of it, right? Exactly. And yeah, I think that's great. I'd like to hear more about your golf game. That sounds really cool. I'd like to, I'm curious how that, how that works. Yeah.
0: Yeah, man. we'll, we'll definitely uh, we'll, we'll chat about it here after the show. But before that, let's uh, let's let's kind of wrap things up. Anything else that we haven't covered? Any other ideas? Any other pillars of two player game
2: design? You want to make sure that we talk about? Boy, I'm trying to think. Um I do think the whole notion of, I mean, perceived value is such a tricky thing, so this is more the marketing end of stuff, but I've seen problems with games put in boxes that are too big and too small. It's almost never the case when you buy a game and you go, wow, that box is exactly the right size. Have you noticed this? Um, <laughs> that yeah, the boxes yeah. are either way too big or way too small. Um And rarely do I see people complain about boxes being too small, but I think that could be a problem. I think if you make a game in a box that's super small, especially a two player game, it can send the impression, oh, this is not to be taken seriously. Um, and I guess it's possible if it's going to sell for a really, really low price and it might sell in volume, that's, that's perfectly fine. But it can also send the idea of, oh, well, this is not to be taken seriously. And so if you put a game in a box that's really small, and then it has some actual heft to it, and it requires some engagement, and it isn't just a quick play game, there's this jarring experience where the mechanics don't map on to people's expectations of what it looks like. And so one of the perils of making two-player games is being able to actually market their substance so i try to make games that have a certain amount of depth to them that feel like multiplayer games and that's what a lot of people don't expect out of two-player games um i see a lot of comments on BoardGameGeek geek about my games where people will say wow that had a lot more to it than i thought and i really liked it then i've also seen people say wow that was way more demanding than i expected out of a two-player game it's not what i wanted right and so i think that there's just um there's just You have to pay a lot of attention to how you want to present your game when it's going to be a two-player game, because I think there's a lot that can really go wrong. It's the whole problem of books that might be too childlike for adults or too adult-like for children, and they don't fit into a sweet spot. The problem is some of the best works of art fit into that. The Phantom Tollbooth as a book fit into that exact problem, and it's one of the best children's books of all time. So I don't know what to say, but I thought I would just mention that as one of the things you have to be particularly careful about.
0: Yeah, that is such a really good point. And I mean, as intellectual, as modern, as progressive as I might think I am, at the end of the day, I have a caveman brain so many times and I just revert back to, oh, big box worth money, small box, not worth price. You know, like this right, just goes right. back to your caveman ideas. And so the bigger the something is, like the more it's worth obviously, or the heavier it is. And like you're saying, maybe even the strategy comes into like some a big box with a lot of components. It's like, oh, this must have a lot of complexity, a lot of stuff going on and it doesn't necessarily have to. It might just have a whole bunch of cards that aren't even that different you know and so yeah managing expectations when it comes to people buying your games and people backing your game on kickstarter it's just it's something to definitely think through and to test right playtesting isn't only for gameplay it's also just the experience it's the product as a whole and like testing all those things to figure figuring out where the sweet spot is yeah absolutely
2: wow this has been excellent any closing thoughts anything you want to leave listeners with Oh boy. I mean there's so many things one might want to say but when you try to think of any of them they all sort of just fly away and disappear, <laughs> right? Um, I, if it's okay I think I'll just share some things about playtesting that I think are that often go wrong really briefly yeah. if that's okay. That sounds great. It's yeah. not on the topic of two player doom so much but just stuff I've noticed because um, I'm thinking about the kind of advice that people are given when they play test. And I think that, I think pitfalls are things to talk about. Maybe that would be a whole topic in and of itself for pitfalls that one might fall into, but the pitfall of objectivity, I think is one of them because we're always told to be really objective, um, whenever we do our, um, game tests, for example. So make sure that you end up having people who don't even know each other, play the game and make sure that you don't in any way influence them. Just hand them the rule book and have them figure it out for themselves or whatnot. But, We are gregarious social beings. And I think that part of a game is how it's presented, right? And basically giving someone something to play cold is not always going to work terribly well. But also one thing I think that gets missed a lot is chemistry. When you test your games, I would just say some of the biggest pitfalls to avoid are don't have someone test your game who is not a fan of that genre of game. Because then you're going to get feedback about the genre not about your particular game it's going to be completely misleading right but Another one, and I think this is less commonly observed, is that if you have people play a game together who have no pre-existing chemistry, if they have no interest in beating one another or rankling the other person or getting them worked up or whatnot, then how are you going to get a sense if this is going to be a good game that works for couples or a good game for people in the same family or people who are friends? You're not. And I think a good chunk of why we play games is the game is the occasion for the friendship to happen. People aren't playing to play the game, they're playing to get together with their friends and the game is the medium for doing that. So I think there should be plenty of testing of games among people who really dig each other. That's all.
0: Yeah, that's some really excellent advice right there. Well, hey, Alf, this has been excellent. You've got a couple games that uh, recently came out. Tell people about those and uh, where they can
2: find them. Yeah, so if you go to eaglegames.net, um, you can look up my game Illumination, which um, just came out. It was on Kickstarter last year and is now in stores. You can get it through the Eagle Griffin um Site as well. That's my game where you play rival monks in the Middle Ages who are duking it out on the pages of illuminated manuscripts. And it's a game that is really involved, but not complicated. My goal is um, Simplexity. We have simple rules, complex outcomes, and it's super engaging sort of game. So that's Illumination. And then the reprinted version, a new version of The Road to Canterbury is also out at EagleGames.net. And it's my game that I mentioned before is about partners, bilking pilgrims, tempting them to commit sins that they then um, forgive them of, collect a lot of money before the pilgrims all collapse because they've committed the deadly sins. And so yeah, EagleGames.net
0: Awesome. Well, Alf, really appreciate your time, really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with all the other games I know you're working on and uh,
2: everything else you got going on right now. I've got new ones, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Gabe, and good, um, good luck with your own games. Boy, you you do a lot.
1: Thanks for listening.